Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. In 1974, India surprised the world with Smiling Buddha, a secret underground nuclear test at Pokhran, Rajasthan. India called it a, quote, peaceful nuclear explosion, but few outside of India saw it that way. The 1974 nuclear tests became a symbol of India's ability to help itself, especially given how the country was left out of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, an agreement the country argued was colonial. But as Jowita Sarkar's Plowshares and Swords, India's nuclear program in the global Cold War points out, the country's nuclear program was in fact the product of Cold War tensions and international networks, including some foreign sources of nuclear knowledge and material. Jowita Sarkar is Senior Lecturer in Economic and Social History at the University of Glasgow and the Founding Director of the Global Decolonization Initiative. Today, Jay and I will talk about India's nuclear program from its very beginnings through to when India was brought back into the world's, or at least the U.S.'s, nuclear good graces in 2008. So, Jay, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. You know, perhaps it's best to start kind of like with with, with the big picture, as always. You know, how is India's approach to foreign policy under Nehru, under Indira Gandhi, how is it kind of commonly understood? And what is it about India's nuclear program that complicates this traditional view, this kind of this common wisdom about India's foreign policy? Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you so much, Nicholas, for inviting me to the podcast. It's very exciting to be able to discuss my book with you and your audience. Um, great question to start us off. Um, yeah, the, the conventional wisdom about uh, India's foreign policy uh, under the uh, under Jawaharlal Nehru and uh, his daughter, Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, has been that India's foreign policy has tended to be more prestige driven um, and far less related to uh, real politique. And uh, uh, scholars over the last you know, 10, 15 years uh, using archival evidence to make sense of Indian foreign policy have been gradually dismantling that that uh, that myth or those set of myths. Um, and so I, I find in my um, in the research I did for my book that India's nuclear program uh, really has this important dimension of uh, geopolitics, uh, which this book really deals with. Um, and I find that there is not a lot of difference between how the how the secular Congress party um, and its various um, uh, iterations were dealing with the nuclear program-related question as opposed to the non-Congress parties. Uh, so one thing the book, for example, does is discuss that um, this, um, the, this episode after the emergency when India witnessed the first non-Congress government led by Muraji Desai, his government did not take a radically different position on India's nuclear program and India's relationship with the non-proliferation regime, for example, than the predecessor government of Indira Gandhi or the successor government of Indira Gandhi. So there is more continuity when it comes to um, different political, different major political parties when it comes to India's nuclear program and their position first. And the second is that uh, this role of uh, geopolitics, which, which tends to get identified with more of a, 
post-1990s shift in India's foreign policy with the, the prominence of, of Hindu nationalist parties, for example, I find that not to be the case. Um, I see geopolitics to be uh, a key dimension of Indian foreign policy throughout. And I also see there is more continuity uh, among the various political, major political parties when it comes to India's nuclear program. So, so your reference to geopolitics, I think, kind of gets at my next question, which is, um, I mean, your your highlighting of geopolitics is kind of presented as like it's a it's a challenge to again how India's nuclear program is again traditionally understood, perhaps in India. Um, is there something about is there something that we gain from bringing in the international dimension um, in talking about India's nuclear program that's missing from how I guess Indians talk about its nuclear program, how historians talk about the nuclear program. Um, how, how does bringing in the international dimension help us understand that development? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. And I think the international dimension and the global dimension is really important uh, when we talk about you know any national nuclear program in general, whether it's whether it is Indian or Israeli or French, uh, because um, historians like myself who, you know, who dabble in hist- histories of diplomacy and politics and technologies, we find that the, the international is omnipresent when it comes to these various networks of scientists or businesses uh, getting know-how, getting materials, uh, because despite the, the narratives that we have of national nuclear programs, you know, they're, they're not, uh, they, they cannot be built just uh, as, as self-contained uh, autarkic systems because it's just not possible. Even the first um, successful nuclear program or project, the Manhattan Project, was officially a trilateral endeavor, but uh, in general was an international endeavor because it would have not been uh, successful without uh, the immigration of scientists and engineers from continental Europe because nuclear fission was uh, way ahead in continental Europe research-wise than uh, in the United States or, or the UK or Canada. Uh, so I think the international dimension is something that is really important when we talk about any nuclear, pro- any national nuclear program, because these are global endeavors, uh, although they're obviously the state is very important. And as a consequence, it becomes national and nationalistic in narratives. Uh, so I think the international dimension in my book with the Indian uh, uh, Indian nuclear program, I, I, I see the role of multiple foreign partners. Uh, and I find that that India's nuclear program uh, was able to maintain, the on the one hand, the plowshares dimension, which is the nuclear energy or civilian side, and the swords dimension, which is, I call it, you know, I call it swords, but essentially the military dimension, um, through a series of successful foreign partnerships with the French, with the Canadians, with the Americans, to an extent the Soviets. There were these these host of foreign partnerships, like hyper-diversification of these partnerships that really helped um, the leaders of India's nuclear program to maintain multiple choices open at the same time, uh, which I, I discussed you know, at the beginning of my book. I frame it as freedom of action. Uh, and then I, I, I explain it through the various chapters, looking at multiple technological uh, choices that the leaders made and how they were able to make those technological choices. Uh, that is through international partnerships. So I think the international partnerships uh, are is 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 really uh, partnerships are a core dimension of 
all I would say all national nuclear programs and definitely in the in the Indian case it helped to maintain multiple options open for the leaders of India's nuclear program making it this huge um polyvalent project uh, serving what I say national security goals as well as national development goals so you mentioned kind of India's nuclear leaders and I want to ask a question about one of them specifically um Homi Baba kind of he's the the chief architect of, of India's nuclear program. Um, you know, he's probably a name who who doesn't pop up out, much outside um, of Indian history, although it's possible I just haven't read enough. Um, but I guess who was Homi Baba and how central is he uh, to this conversation about India's nuclear program? Yeah, absolutely. I think the individuals really matter. Uh, and there are some key individuals in India's nuclear program uh, and definitely in the early years, Homi Jehangir-Pava is uh, is extremely important. Um, he, uh, you know, it's it's so interesting. So my, my book, you know, I, I begin with this moment in 1942 during the Second World War when Homi Bhava meets Vikram Sarabhai. Um, Homi Bhava is considered to be the father of India's nuclear program. And Vikram Sarabhai, uh, who is a few years younger to him, um, is considered father of India's space program. Uh, and both of them meet uh, at IISC, in Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore, uh, during the Second World War in 1942. Both of them had done their degrees uh, at the Cavendish Laboratory at the University of Cambridge, and they had returned back to the subcontinent uh, because of the war um, in Europe. And obviously the war was also taking place in South Asia in, in a very in a very literal way. There were battlefields of the Second World War even there. Uh, and so uh, I think uh, Homi Bhava is is really important, uh, but I would say that Vikram Sarabhai, who is his successor, uh, sort of you know continues many of Bhava's projects, and they more or less agreed on many things uh, when it came to the nuclear program uh, and its close relationship with the space program. Uh, so Homi Bhava uh, was uh, was a physicist and uh, just like Sarabhai. And uh, he, uh, after he moved back to uh, India, British India, uh, he was uh, he was a reader, was appointed as a reader by C. V. Raman um, at IIC Bangalore, and uh, there he, you know, he, he he was thinking about what to do about. He wanted to establish an institute of fundamental physics uh, while he was in Bangalore, and uh, he was uh, related to the uh, Tata family and. Um, uh, GRD Tata was not just a relative, but also he was very close to GRD Tata. And so um, he wrote this letter uh, to the uh, Dorap Tata Trust uh, asking for uh, funds to establish an institute of fundamental research in India because there was nothing of that sort at the time. And that's what, uh, that's what, that's what led to what is today called the TIFR or the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research. And although it, it was eventually established in Bombay, you know, the first it was first established in Bangalore because that's where Dr. Bhava himself was located. Um, and so I think he is extremely important because of his vision on the one hand, but also his ability to um, to to get the capital that he needed uh, to materialize his vision. Uh, so in the in the book, I I, I make some reference to Sheila Jasanov's. Uh, and some other SDS scholars' notion of uh, socio-technical imaginaries of the nation. So these leaders of India's nuclear program 
are, are have certain Im- imagination imagination of what the nation would be doing with science and technology, and that vision is is was guiding their activities and you know the role that they were playing. But they also had access to uh, financial networks in the case of Homi Bhabha through his connection to the Tata family. Um, and uh, and also Zara Bhai, who was you know was part of uh, the, the Gujarati business uh, community, and you know Ahmedabad is where he established the physical research laboratories before he um, became one of the key people of the space program. Right. So these are individuals who have uh, lofty visions on the one hand, and also access to social and financial capital, which which makes a lot of difference when it comes to um, outcomes and consequences for the nuclear program. So I'd like to shift to talking about more of the international dimension now. Um, And, you know, one central program that you talk about in your book is the U.S.'s Atoms for Peace initiative. Um, You know, first I should ask, what was the Atoms for Peace initiative? Um, And then how did that relate to India's nuclear program? Um, the Atoms for Peace initiative um, was, well, it, the origin was that uh, President Eisenhower uh, gave the speech, Atoms for Peace, uh, in December 1953. And it was, uh, it's, it was this unique moment, unique at the time, uh, because all of a sudden, uh, he, all of a sudden, he promised uh, nuclear know-how to be available to the world. Uh, and this was very... Um, surprising to a lot of people within his own administration on the one hand and also the world, uh, because after the Second World War, the, the, the U.S. government did not really open up nuclear know-how, but rather closed down. And that was you know, the U.S. Atomic Energy Act of 1946 um, and this this category of restricted data. And I think um, Alex Wellerstein's um, a book which is called Restricted Data, you know, does a terrific job describing, you know, uh, persistence of secrecy, wartime secrecy in post-war years. Um, so, 1953 December was this this moment, uh, this unprecedented moment that all of a sudden, um, the, the the president of the United States that has the largest number of patents on nuclear know-how is making it available to the world to for, for civilian ends, um, and so that is. That the speech and the the immediate outcome of the speech in terms of policy outcomes at home in the United States was the U.S. Atomic Energy Act being amended, the 1954 Act, making it available, so allowing businesses to actually buy and sell uh, nuclear know-how, and so it crafted this uh, the, what I call the global atomic marketplace um, as a consequence. And outside the, of the United States was the the creation of the International Atomic Energy Agency, headquartered in Vienna even today. Um, so the Atoms for Peace initiative basically created the global atomic marketplace for the first time. And as a consequence, countries like India, that prior to the initiative of Atoms for Peace, was looking for know-how, but not really getting it because of uh, various um, wartime secrecy and stockpiling efforts um, by the United States, by the, by the British government um, that persisted in post-war years. All of a sudden, countries like India were able to actually just uh, ask um, ask for um, technologies and, and get it from countries like 
the, the UK, countries like the United States, uh, countries like Canada. Uh, so, that, so that's what uh, the Adams for Peace initiative is about in terms of, you know, what it was, the vision and the policy outcome or outcomes, shall I say. Yeah. So sticking, sticking with, the, um, with the geopolitical framing here, um, you know, it sounds like one of the big impetuses for, for India's nuclear program was China's successful nuclear test. Um, and I guess, what was it about that event that really in, inspired, sounds like too, too optimistic a word, but what was it about, about China's nuclear test that really seemed to accelerate uh, India's drive to make its own nuclear weapons? Yeah, I, I find, um, you know, when I started the research uh, many years ago, I, I, I thought it was, you know, it was just it was just a host of reasons. And I thought, you know, Pakistan may be very important as well. But the more I, I delved into the archives and got a sense of what Indian policymakers were thinking, I, I became convinced that, you know, in, in, in these the years that I, I discuss in the book, um, 1940s to 19, early 1980s, so I stopped. Uh, early 1984, I find that the most important dimension for for Indian policymakers in the region is the People's Republic of China, and far less Pakistan. Pakistan is important because it's aligned with the PRC. Um, and so, coming to your question about um, the the test, the first Chinese nuclear weapon test of October 1964. Uh, is 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 not the first time that Indian policymakers discover that their geopolitical adversary has nuclear weapons, but it's just it just sealed, uh, it just sealed it as a reality that certainly the PRC has nuclear weapons, and there is no way that one one can ignore that. And I say this that it's not the first time because um, because I I've seen archival references that Indian policymakers. Uh, discussing with their American counterparts, saying that, you know, we are very concerned about Chinese nuclear weapons development. uh, And this is prior to the nuclear test. Uh, We are worried about what this means for the fraught border between India and China. Uh, We are very concerned. And then the test happens uh, in October 64. It doesn't, it's not the, it's not that it's just a test. Like there's, there are several tests that the Chinese undertake uh, especially the you know the year 1966, there are so many tests. 1967, there's a hydrogen bomb test uh, by by the Chinese. So there are these, and then there was a satellite test uh, in, 19, in 1970. So these continuous advancements of Chinese nuclear weapons uh, continue to make Indian policymakers very anxious, um, and 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 thereby I find that you know their 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 geopolitical anxieties uh, drive to an extent keeping the nuclear weapons option open. So one more one more kind of international relations, international uh, structure, I guess, question. Um, so India has a very strong view of the of the nonproliferation treaty, um, which it criticizes as colonial, as kind of um, what's the right word? as as setting in stone the, I guess the nuclear hierarchy. Um, which India cannot become a part of. Um, so it calls it colonial. Uh, were those arguments... I'm going to ask, were, were those arguments sincere? Although I think it can be hard to kind of separate the maybe the ideology from the hard-nosed geopolitics of it. Um, 
but I guess what what kind of motivates that criticism? And I guess was that criticism sincere? Um, you know, it's it's a very it's an age old debate, <laughs> and I think these questions uh, has this these questions or uh, especially you know what is whether sincere. So this question has been raised, you know, from nineteen sixty eight, right when India refused to sign uh, the nuclear uh, non proliferation treaty. Um, so I, I would say that that India's position um, uh, against the nuclear non-proliferation treaty um, is it makes a lot of sense from from the perspective of Indian policymakers um, because this was a treaty that on the one hand um, allowed countries to have civilian nuclear programs. And at the same time, created various checks and balances to prevent civilian programs from becoming uh, dual purpose or becoming a military program. Uh, and I think uh, in India's main concern from the geopolitical side of things was that the NPT uh, did, could not prevent the PRC uh, or could not contain the PRC's nuclear weapons program. Because first of all, the NPT has this temporal cutoff. Um, so all the countries that have tested within a certain period of time, that is definitely after the PRC's test uh, of 64, uh, they are considered nuclear weapon states and everybody else is no, non-nuclear weapon states. So countries like India that has nuclear weapons uh, is a nuclear armed state as opposed to a nuclear weapon state under the NPT. Um, so I think, that, so it, it does, it has clearly, it has clear hierarchies. I mean, there's just no way to say there are no hierarchies in the NPT. Quite obviously there are, it's, it's part of the treaty, it's in the text. Um, so I don't think it's, uh, it's, 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 I don't think it's not factual um, that the NPT has created hierarchies. Um, and I think from the point of view of Indian policymakers, the NPT was going to do absolutely nothing to address India's concerns of geopolitics towards the PRC. And it does come up in the archives quite a lot when Vikram Sarabhai and uh, V.C. Trivedi, who was India's representative in Geneva at the 18 Nation Disarmament Committee that was negotiating the treaty that became the NPT, um, they, they do raise those concerns uh, towards American um, uh, uh, interlocutors. There was these uh, sort of a track to meetings that were taking place in India with the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, you know, based in Cambridge. I think they were headquartered in Brookline, Massachusetts at the time, but you know now it's in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts. And so they were they were having these discussions about how to address India's concerns of, of towards the NPT. And over and over again, Indian interlocutors like Vikram Sarabhai, like VC Trivedi, were talking about the NPT does nothing uh, to contain, like leave alone prevent, contain Chinese nuclear weapons program. Uh, so it is it's not. It, 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 there is not enough incentive for a country like India to sign it. Uh, and in terms of hierarchies, I mean, that, that's, that's, those are just facts in the treaty text itself. So we, we finally made it to, to um, India's first nuclear test um, in Pokhran in 1974. Um, you know, I think I noticed like there was, I think India was obviously very proud of the nuclear test. Um, a lot of countries were not very happy about it. I mean, especially Pakistan, but um, other countries as well. Um, how does the nuclear test 1974 change the conversation about 
India and its nuclear program? Yeah, that's that's such an uh, you know that's, that's such an important question, um, and I think it's it's far more important to reflect on you know the consequences of that nuclear explosion of May 1974 than the causes. I mean, I do get into the causes in the book, but I think the consequences are really important. Um, so as, as, as you would know, and I think most of your audience would also know um, that India called it a peaceful nuclear explosion. And this took place in 1974. So at, at the height of the, or the, or the oil price um, uh, shocks and you know what, what that meant in terms of uh, in terms of framing a nuclear explosion that could potentially be used for um, drilling for oil. Um, so what I'm trying to get at is, um, on the one hand, within the country, within the country of, uh, that is within India, um, it had it, it, it generated support for India's nuclear program, actually, because um, the Indian government, the prime minister Indira Gandhi said multiple times that, um, you know, this is um, uh, this this is this is for peaceful purposes, and this was uh, in this was and then Homi Seshna, um, who was the, the chair of the Atomic Energy Commission, said multiple times that this is for oil drilling. You know, we don't have oil in India. There is there is the oil price shock. The, the the cost of oil is so high; it's affecting Indian agric- Indian agriculture uh, because a lot of petroleum products, you know, used for fertilizers, etc. And so um, it created support to the point I find like several op-eds being written at the time in places like Times of India, where Indian middle classes are actually asking for uh, peaceful nuclear explosives to change the course of rivers. And, you know, very much like Edward Teller was was, was writing a few years before uh, sitting in Livermore. Um, so it just within the country, at least among the middle classes, it generates support for India's nuclear program. And at, at a time of economic crisis, because nuclear program or nuclear explosions also are very expensive. And so to, to generate support um, for a not very productive act uh, <laughs> at a time of economic crisis is, is, quite, a, is quite a political feat. Um, so I think that's something that happened inside the country. Um, among uh, outside, apart from the, you know, ap- apart from countries like Canada that become very worried about India's nuclear program because Canadian supplied um, reactor, research reactor uh, that produced plutonium was reprocessed by India in the nuclear explosive device that they made. Um, Canada was very worried. The United States was also worried because heavy water in that Cyrus reactor was US supplied. Uh, So there were all these concerns, but countries like say, uh, Iran, countries like Libya, all of a sudden uh, began to look at India as, or Argentina, began to look at India as this potential supplier of nuclear know-how um, in, in, a, in, in a way that, that felt attainable. And what I mean by that is country like uh, Iran uh, at the time, 74, uh, 75, was also expanding its own nuclear energy enterprise. And it had agreements with the United States, with the French, the West Germans, but it was not getting, the country was not getting um, know-how because, you know, first of all, the U.S. has very strict position against technology transfer. I think we can all agree on that. Um, the French were, the French and West Germans were also trying to collaborate with the Iranians in, in a way to not give them know-how. And whereas India had demonstrated uh, that it has the ability to conduct a nuclear explosion on its own. So clearly it knew how to do it. Uh, So it just felt like India uh, just gave some hope to countries such as Iran, Libya and Argentina as a potential supplier 
of know-how, uh, that they would actually share know-how unlike these other Western countries that were not. Um, and then, of course, the very negative reaction from uh, countries like Pakistan, understandably, because it's, it's a geopolitical adversary, um, or you know, um, countries like Canada, because of its own uh, nuclear materials being involved, were also very negative. Uh, the most important international policy outcome was obviously the nuclear suppliers group um, that was that was created as a response to, um, in, in many ways, the NSG or the nuclear suppliers group was this reversal of Adams for Peace that we we were discussing earlier. So Adams for Peace, nineteen fifty three, just you know opens up or creates the global atomic marketplace, and then after nuclear explosion by India of seventy four. Um, uh, these major nuclear suppliers meet in London. So at the beginning, it was called London Suppliers Conference to basically control this atomic marketplace that has gone too far, uh, according to the suppliers. Um, so I think those are some of the key consequences uh, inside the country, outside the country of the nuclear explosion of 1974. So we're going to, we're going to, jump ahead now to to almost the present day um you know i'm i remember the conversations around um the civilian nuclear deal of 2000 of 2008 early 2008 was when it came into effect um negotiated between bush and india um which helped to kind of bring india back into the fold of kind of of the nuclear conversation um so kind of what what role does the country play today in today's conversation about nuclear energy, nuclear weapons, since the civilian nuclear deal was signed um, uh, almost, what, 15 years ago, I guess? Oh, wow. Time flies. I feel so old because <laughs> I, I also remember um, reading you know, so many newspaper um, articles and magazine articles and op-eds about that. Um, yeah. So what's what's the status today? Um, I think you know the, the most important outcome of the U.S.-India uh, uh, NCA or nuclear cooperation agreement um, was that uh, that India slow, slowly and steadily entered most of the uh, export control regimes uh, like the Wassenaar arrangement and others, except with the exception of the NSG, uh, and this is so is. Uh, so at present, India is, is not a member of the NPT, and it's very unlikely that any Indian government will sign it. It's not a member of the nuclear suppliers group or the NSG because it constantly gets Chinese opposition. But it is a member of all the other um, export control regimes, which sort of make up the global uh, glo uh, global uh, non-proliferation architecture, if you will. Uh, so I think the, the agreement um, made India uh, less of an outsider, less of a pariah when it comes to the non-proliferation regime broadly construed uh, on the one hand. But on the other hand, you know, the, the big conversation, I mean, you may also remember this, Nicholas, that the big conversation was this nuclear renaissance, right? Um, that civilian nuclear agreement with, with India, which is such a huge market, uh, potentially a huge market, it's just going to lead to this global nuclear energy renaissance like that that did not happen um one a major point was obviously what happened in fukushima a few years later 2011 uh, on the one hand and the other one was this conversations around nuclear liability and the nuclear liability bill that gave a, several 
U.S. companies, uh, Cold Feet, and also you know, several other companies. And I think the, the French and the Russians were the only ones who were willing to still um, talk business uh, with, with India after the liability bill. So I think in terms of the nuclear renaissance, uh, there is not much happening um, as far as I understand. Uh, I mean, it's still it's still there. I mean, I mean, um, there are still brochures being published uh, because, you know, this is 2022. We're at the end of it. So it's been 10 years since Fukushima. So we're still we are once again hearing conversations about a potential nuclear uh, glo- uh, nuclear energy renaissance that's going to you know fix climate change, et cetera. Uh, that India might be uh, one of the, 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 the front runners of that. But that's those are brochures. There's not much happening in terms of you know, actual um, uh, actual activities. But I think the most important outcome is this India becoming, you know, it's still an outsider because it's not a member of the NSU or the NPT, but it's far less of an outsider than it was before 2005, before 2008. So now that we've kind of charted the path of India's nuclear development, I think that's a, that's a this is a great place to end our conversation with, um, <laughs> with, with Jay Sarkar, author of Plowshares and Swords, India's Nuclear Program in the Global Cold War. Jay, I actually have two more questions for you, uh, and those are, you know, where can is, is this is the standard the standard um, outro questions, which are, uh, where can people find your work, and what's next for you? What might the next project be? Yeah, people can find my work uh, on my website. You know, it's my full name, joitasarkar.com, um, and that can link to my institutional webpage of the University of Glasgow, etc. But um, I think I keep my website more or less updated, so. Uh, you can find most of my stuff there. Um, and um, I am not an avid tweeter, so I'm going to leave my Twitter handle for now. Uh, what is next for me is uh, I'm working on my next book um, for Princeton University Press, uh, which is called Atomic Capitalism, A Global History. Um, my first book that we discussed uh is is very much about diplomacy and politics and technology, and I, I don't think I had you know much scope given the way I con- conceptualized the project to bring the businesses in, uh, to bring discussions of you know land, labor, and debt, uh, those kinds of uh, things that were you know I, I got very interested in. So the next project is going to be a discussion of hundred um, year history of from eighteen nineties to nineteen nineties about the history of nuclear sites in the world through the lens of uh, capitalism, uh, specifically land, labor, and debt, focusing on everything from nuclear energy to nuclear explosion sites to uranium mining. And I'm really looking forward to working on that and finishing it and then coming back and talking about it. Well, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. Um, this podcast is all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, joins for an interview with Jeff Fearnside, author of Ships in the Desert. But before then, Jay, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. It's my great pleasure. Thank you, Nicholas. 